Welcome to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. We meet each Sunday online and in person at 10.30 a.m. You can find the Bernie Church of Christ at number one Upper Balconies Road, right next to Starbucks. With today's message, here's our youth and family minister, Jacob Dukes. Mission trips have always been an important part of my life. From the summer after freshman year of high school, so the summer before I became a sophomore, year, a sophomore in high school, mission trips have always been super important to me, and I've loved serving in that capacity as well as in other capacities. And all of that has to do with my involvement in a local mission organization in the San Antonio area that I did for a few summers. So for a few summers, I volunteered with this local nonprofit out of Wimberley, Texas, um, that put together these high school-aged mission trips. They had some middle school ones as well that I helped on those as well as a high schooler. Um, But I mostly attended the high school ones and served in those capacities far more often. So for a few summers, I volunteered with this local nonprofit out of Wimberley, and we took trips every summer, and usually I'd take about two trips every summer. So two weeks out of the summer, we'd be serving in some small town either in South or Central Texas. And we do all sorts of projects. The very first trip I took, we went to Uvalde, Texas, and one of the very first things is they had us take down the whole siding of somebody's house and put it all back up. Now, I can't imagine trusting a bunch of unknowing high school students to do such a big project, but they trusted us with that. We took up flooring, we took up, uh, we took up sheetrock and put in insulation and new sheetrock. We, we built new roofs and we, we put tar down and put shingles down. We did all this stuff. Um, we served in so many different ways, but the weird thing about it is because I did not grow up doing any of that until my sophomore year in high school. I don't consider myself handy by any means. Um, I don't consider myself um, the type that, that is able to just fix anything that's broken in front of me. But I get by with YouTube videos and intuition. Yet, prior to this first mission trip that summer, I had little to no experience with tools of any kind, or really, power tools. I'm just lucky, even to this day, if things get put back the way they came apart. And I'm sure some of you could appreciate that. Now, eventually, I would learn a lot more terms that had to do with construction or building projects. Um, Terms like making sure something is plumb or flush, uh, leveling something out, making it square, um, and all the different names for all the different types of wrenches um, that I still have not fully mastered. But there was one phrase that a friend of mine shared that always stuck with me. Something that always stuck with me that even to this day, it rings true in my head time and time again. And that phrase is, work smarter, not harder. Work smarter, not harder. And to this day, that phrase really embodies me when it comes to any project. Because typically how things go is I spend more money than I need to, buy all the parts that I don't need, and take apart pieces that really should have stayed together. I work harder, but not smarter. And I should be doing the opposite. 
two years ago, our youth group took a trip to Galveston, Texas for a mission trip of our own, and we served with an organization there called Galveston Urban Ministries. And uh, Alan Rich and myself were tasked, along with several of our students, with a sheetrocking project. Now, Alan and I both had experience doing sheetrocking. We had done it um, in the past on several different projects, but neither one of us had really ever taken the lead on a project like this. But I always needed to remind myself, work smarter, not harder. In the end, we got the job done, and I, I think we did a fairly good job at that. Um, but the hard part about leading a project like that for the very first time is that, one, is that we, Alan and myself, were, were so used to taking direction from others that the thought of giving direction was pretty daunting. Therefore, when lacking the direction that we so heavily relied upon, we're at a loss of what to do next. In John's version of the events, uh, something that, that Greg briefly read for us a little bit, in John's version of the events of the Last Supper meal, prior to Christ's arrest and subsequent crucifixion, the meal turns less of more of an institution of the Lord's Supper, something that we just partook of ourselves here in just a, a few moments ago. It turns into not so much an institution of this sacrament, but more of a farewell address, more of a goodbye. In John 13 through 16, in John chapters 13 through 16, Jesus delivers what some have labeled his farewell address to his disciples, and in some ways his farewell address to the entire world. And when we compare how John's Passover meal shows up in the gospel of maybe Mark versus the gospel of John, we see some of these nuances. So Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 17, it reads, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And now for the same story, just told slightly different in the Gospel of John. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, both accounts of these meals, these Passover meals that Jesus shares with his disciples in his final days, both accounts of these uh, share some very, very great key details, such as Judas's betrayal. 
But the nature of the gathering and the purpose behind it proves to be quite different. In John, Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples in somewhat cryptic language uh, of the events that are about to take place, of his arrest, his death, and his resurrection, and why he must leave them. Now, shocked that their leader and teacher, the one who's been directing their steps for so long, shocked that he would be leaving them and that they cannot join him themselves, you can imagine the state of shock and despair on the faces of the twelve, or at this point, the eleven. You can imagine the state of shock and despair that would be sent into their hearts, into their very souls on that night. Now, I would imagine they felt hopeless, lost, and lacking any sense of where to go from here. When we lack direction, that's exactly how we feel. It's in our deepest, darkest moments in life that we can empathize with the disciples' feeling of despair and depression and anxiety as the Messiah is about to die. You know, maybe some of those deepest, darkest moments for, for us Maybe we hurt someone, whether it's with our words or with our hands, with our actions, or maybe we've hurt ourselves, or maybe we don't like very much about ourselves. Maybe it's when we find ourselves in some deep sin that we just cannot seem to shake, that just stays the same day in and day out. You are listening to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. To learn more about us, please visit our website, BernieChurchOfChrist.org, or follow us on Facebook. Now, with the rest of today's message, here's Youth and Family Minister Jacob Dukes. Maybe we don't like or accept the trajectory of our relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and it causes us despair. Now, Scripture itself actually recognizes that deep pain that is felt when there's nowhere else to turn. And one of the most depressing bits of Scripture in the entire Bible is found in Psalm 88. And hear these words with a little bit of a grain of salt. Psalm 88 reads, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your ways. You have taken me from my closest friends have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you, Lord. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? 
From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. They surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This is not the only section of the Psalms that is sad or despairing or depressing, but it is the only Psalm that ends that way. When darkness seems to surround us, as it does for the psalmist here, and as, as if it seems that darkness is our closest and only friend, it's hard to see the light. It's hard to see the one who is the true light and how that light might direct us moving forward. But we must recognize that the, the, the true one of the light that is full of light is already leading the way if we would just look ahead. The beautiful thing about uh, John's version of the Passover events, uh, John's Passover narrative that, that you'll, you won't pick up on in the other Gospels when you read through them, the beautiful thing about it that you won't quite pick up on is that Jesus is in absolute control of his, faith, the, of his fate the entire time. Now, that's not to say that um, Jesus is not in control of his fate in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but in John, it's really hit hard. Because in the Gospel of John, it's not so much Judas going on his own volition to betray Christ, but Jesus is the one who sends Judas to begin his betrayal. Found here in John 13, verses 21 to 27, which reads, After he said this, meaning Jesus, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. He says this at the meal. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I dipped it in the dish. And dipping, then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what, are you going to do, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now the odd thing about this scene is what comes directly following that. When the disciples are utterly dumbfounded, at the words of Christ. And this is not something that's uncommon in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John typically paints the disciples as confused, misunderstanding, and not really getting there. But in the Gospel of John chapter 13, immediately following these events, it reads this, but no one at the meal, the disciples, no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Now, this practice was customary on the Passover. Um, for the one who held the money within the group, it was customary to go find a needy family within the area and to provide for them so they could celebrate the Passover in the very same way that all the others did as well. But from our main passage today, let's take a little bit dive 
further. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, reads this way. Jesus' words here are, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know what the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a, short, such a long time, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. None of this at all is to say, uh, is, is to say that at any point do the evangelists believe that Jesus lacked the control to control his own fate. But it is to say that Jesus displayed his power in more obvious ways than is seen in the synoptics. Jesus' claim about being the way, the truth, and the life is in response to the disciples' concern of him leaving this earth. And at this point, they know their lives are about to change. But they don't know how or why they're about to change. Or at least they think they don't. Jesus offers them peace of mind here when he tells them, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. If you know the Father, you know me. And he offers them this peace of mind because as they feel as if they do not know where to go, he directs them exactly. Jesus' words and teachings are a beautiful encouragement here for the disciples as they are fearful of what lies ahead for them. Now, life is probably its scariest whenever we're in this spot. Life is probably scariest when we don't know what lies ahead for us in our future. Times of transition, such as high school graduation, college graduation, marriage, divorce, childbirth, buying a home, moving, landing a new job or promotion, being laid off or fired, or any other change in life that may come to mind, provides a little bit of uneasiness and gives us reason for pause or reason for skepticism. The disciples felt that fear, the disciples felt that very fear, just as it seemed life was transitioning. Now what strikes me personally as, as so profound about Jesus' demeanor here in the Gospel of John is how calm, confident, and collective he is throughout it all. From this moment to his very time upon the cross, Jesus' demeanor remains the same. John paints this strong portrait of the sacrificial lamb who is, so, who is not so concerned with the pain he will soon endure, 
but with the despair and uneasiness that his disciples feel right now and in that very moment. Now, I believe the reason for this calm, cool, collected, confident attitude is that Jesus had his gaze upon something greater and upon something elsewhere. When everyone looked down, Jesus looked up. When everyone was looking behind, Jesus looked forward. Jesus cared about the people surrounding him more so than he cared about what was going to happen to himself. And when everyone looked to the world, Jesus looked up once again to heaven. Jesus, as it reads in John 13, verse 1, knew that the hour had come. Jesus knew his time was up and that the hour had come and that he was ready for it because he knew of the beauty and life that awaited him on the other side. Yet it was not his prize to receive, but one that he offers to us. Today I want to invite you into that promise of eternal glory that Jesus had his gaze set upon in those last days. Today I want to invite you into that promise of eternal glory with every moment of this earthly life that our sights may be set. Join the Son of God today and share in the Spirit that He offers to all of us. If you feel like you lack direction in life, if it's hard to look where to go or to understand what comes next, Jesus is here for you. He's actually here for you today. Thank you for listening to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. You can hear the Bernie Church of Christ right here on Bernie Radio each Sunday at 11 a.m. or for worship online or in person each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. To learn more about the Bernie Church of Christ, visit our website, birdiechurchofchrist.org or call us at 830-249-2685. Again, that's 830-249-2685. Thank you once again for listening to the Birdie Church of Christ, and I hope you have a blessed day.